I'll invite you to turn with me for the last time, at least for a long time, to the book of Galatians. It's been a real ride. If you've ever written or read like a serious uh, thesis-driven paper, perhaps a dissertation or something like a journal article that is centering on an argument, you know that when you come to the close, of a, the close of a paper like this, you get to the conclusion, and a writer who's really skilled, he or she, what they are going to do is not simply parrot or repeat what they've already said. If they're a skilled writer, they are going to summarize previous themes, their argument, their thesis, but they're going to do so without parroting themselves. And so as we come to the end of the book of Galatians, Paul is a master writer. He's basically going to give us the book in microcosm. You guys could have skipped all the other times and just come for this one. (laughs) No, that would not be good. But what he's going to do without repeating himself, without parroting himself, he's going to take us through the major themes of the book. It's going to center on these two different gospels that we've seen. Gospel of the cross, which is the gospel that he preaches. And he's going to get us there through a different means this time, by means of the preachers or the ministers. So keep that in mind as I read the text. Paul is really bringing us back through the major themes of the book, centering on these two competing gospels. And he's going to get us... So if you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. Those who would want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves. And yet they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. May peace come to all who follow this standard and let no one cause me trouble because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. You can be seated. So Paul here, we see him giving us the book in microcosm. He's summarizing what he said before without repeating himself and then bringing it to a close. And what we're going to see in the text is we have a choice between two gospels. We'll see that there is a gospel of circumcision and there is a gospel of the cross. Points. We have a choice between two gospels. There is a gospel of circumcision, which is a gospel of works, and there is a gospel of the cross. You see, it's not just the Galatians that have these competing gospels. They're not the ones alone who need to make a decision. It was true for them, it's true for us. There is a gospel of works, which encourages us to look to the self for salvation to boast in the self, to stand upon one's own merit before God. And then there is the gospel of the cross, one that rather than boasting in the self, boasts in Jesus. It exalts Christ and it clings to his cross by faith. Before we jump in and consider the gospel of circumcision, that's where we'll start, we get kind of an appetizer or a precursor in verse 11. Paul writes, look at at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. 
Now, why is Paul saying this? Does he have just great handwriting he's trying to impress him with? His font is Paul Pyrus. That's for the font nerds, Papyrus. Now, what is probably happening here is that for the entire letter up to this point, Paul has been dictating it to someone else. So he's been speaking, someone like a scribe or a secretary, they're called an amanuensis, they're the one who's writing it. It was a very common practice, it was a common practice of Paul's. Well, coming to the close of the letter, it's like Paul snatches the quill and he begins, it's, it's like the closest thing he can get to looking them in the eyes. He wants them to see his handwriting. So whereas the first five and a half chapters, they would have been nice and neat, professional even, like he didn't ask his friend with chicken scratch to write it. We come to the end and it would have been emotional and earnest. It's in all caps, the equivalent of our all caps. What Paul is doing here is he is throwing his weight into this letter as an apostle. And so in this sense, he's ending it in the way that he began it. You'll remember chapter 1, verse 1, he describes himself as an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul, who we saw, the, the unlikeliest of converts. The Judaizers were saying that he learned his gospel from man, that he tweaked it, he changed it. He told them, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, it from a human source, I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is wanting them to know that this letter with its gospel, its doctrine, its promises, its warnings, that should they turn to the law for justification, they will be cut off from Christ and his benefits, that all of God. And so Paul is throwing his weight in as an apostle, but he's also throwing his weight in as a friend. They probably would have recognized his handwriting. You see, there was a time, we saw Galatians 4.15, they would have torn out their eye and given it to Paul if they could. They would have done anything for him because they knew that he would have done anything for their spiritual well-being. Even now, he says, Galatians 4.19, My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. And so this final section, it comes to us as the words of God. It came to the Galatians as the words of God, yes, but also the words of a friend. Their spiritual father, their former pastor. Paul wants them to feel the weight of the words and the decision that's put before them. Once again, we should consider the length at which Paul will go for his spiritual family. If your brothers or sisters are in sin, the application of this text, of this verse, it's not to send them a text in all caps. It is to show up to their home, to throw all of your relational weight into that they might look you in the eye and to use the same weight, the authority that Paul did with Scripture. Verse 11, it's a reminder to them and to us of the gravity of the situation. Like, the Galatians aren't reading junk mail. They are forced with a decision between true and false teachers and therefore true and false gospels. Therefore, true and false life. And Paul will see it it, two subpoints for both my points. It promotes self-exaltation, and it promotes or is grounded in self-preservation. So as we consider a gospel of circumcision, which is really a gospel of works, it is about the exaltation of the self, and it is about preserving the self. We see self-exaltation in verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, so speaking of the Judaizers, those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised. They're compelling you to be circumcised. Now, to remind us one last time, the Judaizers, they're like this group of anti-missionaries. 
So Paul's preaching, they show up, they're doing cleanup duty, they think. What's important for us to grasp is that they would have agreed with Paul on almost everything. Just like false teachers today would agree with Paul on almost everything. So Jesus, the Son of God, sure. Died on the cross as a ransom for many, of course. Rose from the dead as a victorious son, amen. You see, false teachers are believable for a reason. Now, the Judaizers are saying Paul didn't go far enough was the problem. So faith in Jesus, yes. Repentance, yes. But you need more. You need to be law. And so Acts 15.1, we hear their mantra. It says, some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. What Paul is telling us here is that though they came preaching, concern is not really your salvation. Notice they came to impress you in the flesh. Now, by now we know that the flesh in Galatians is bad, okay? Flesh bad, spirit good. You remember it that way, flesh bad. Now, the way that Paul has used it typically thus far is the flesh is, it's like our old nature. It's that part of us that doesn't do or desire the things of God. We might describe it as a power even that corresponds with this present evil age. Paul is not using it like that in this sense here, though he employs the word because he's bringing all of its baggage with it. Paul is using it here to say flesh in the sense of what's visible. Okay, false teachers want to make a good impression in the flesh. That is, they want you to be impressed with the works that you see them doing under the law. Friends, this is one of the tall tale signs of a false teacher. They care less about your repentance and more about their reputation. Less about your faith in Christ and more about their fame. They are eager to have your gaze fixed upon them. They want a following. The celebrity pastor, not meaning to comment on that. But there is certainly something perverse about someone who uses a pulpit for popularity. It will warp your gospel. It's actually birthed out of a warped gospel. You recall what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, that we cannot be a servant of Christ and a pleaser of men. But the Judaizers have come to please. They have come to impress you in the flesh, to woo you, to win you over to themselves. We saw this, Galatians 4, 17. They court you eagerly, but not for your good. You see, they've come to impress you by what they're doing under the law, and they come to impress others. Look at verse 13. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves. We'll consider that in a moment. And yet, they want you to be circumcised. Why? In order to boast about your flesh. They are wanting to grow their ministry. They view you as a number. To put it rather crassly, they came to Galatia foreskin hunting. They are hoping to have a good newsletter report after their mission trip. They want to return to Jerusalem with numbers of converts and circumcisions. They don't care about your soul or your salvation. Just a little bit of skin because it leads to their stardom. Brothers and sisters, we should be weary. Weary of those who think success is measured solely by new. Should we ever start caring more about numbers? How many people are in here? How many baptisms we're having? Should we care more about numbers than we care about faith and repentance and faithfulness? To dictate our ministry and message around what is popular is ungodly. 
And yet false teachers, they are after their acclaim and everything they do, their aim is not the exaltation of Christ, but the exaltation of self. But you see, this is because boasting in the self is not just consistent with their gospel, it's the foundation of their gospel. Think about it. False teachers, they want you to be impressed with what you see in them. Perhaps they wanted the Galatians to fawn over their ethnicity. They want us to be impressed with how much Bible they know, with the length of their prayers, with how much they put in the offering, to be amazed by the size of their churches and ministries, perhaps to awe over their material possessions. They do not want you to see them as vile sinners in need of a Savior. There is no room for that in their gospel. You see, what they want from you to be impressed with their works in the flesh and the law is what they want from God. Their gospel is a workspace gospel. Their hope is in their efforts, their striving. Just as they think they will impress you by what they've done, so too do they hope to impress God. They think in their keeping of the law that they will have reason to stand before him in self-glory. You see, a gospel of works promotes self-righteousness, which, which really is self-glory. Now, they're preaching this message, a message of works that were saved by our own merit, by being good enough before God, as we adhere to the law, the first of which is circumcision. But here's the problem. Verse 13, they don't even keep the law themselves. For even the circumcised, Paul writes, don't keep the law themselves. Really, they don't keep the law. Paul is saying they're putting all this stock into circumcision because they think it grants them entrance into the people of God. They think it's necessary, therefore, for salvation. But here's the problem, as we've seen throughout Galatians. If your hope is to stand on your own merit before God, if your hope is to be perfect because of his law, you need to keep the entire thing at every moment of your life. That's because the law operates on this principle. Galatians chapter 3, verse 12. The one who does these things must live by them. All of them. You can't pick and choose. So if you're going to find life in the law, you have to keep the whole thing, which you can't, which means you're cursed. Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Said differently, if you are going to look to the law for life, you need to keep the whole thing. Circumcision will not be enough. But replace circumcision with whatever, baptism, you need to keep the whole thing. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. Circumcision benefits you if. We see that there's a scenario in which circumcision is actually meaningful, helpful, salvific even. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Then he goes on, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter, that a person's praise, that their boast is not from people but from God. You see, there is a type of circumcision that's meaningful. It's not something that we can do to ourselves. It's not something that someone does to us when we're an infant. Rather, it's the work of God to give life to the dead. And because it's the work of to boast. Paul there in the next chapter of Romans, verse 27, where then is boasting, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ excludes boasting 
because we have nothing to boast in. We are not justified by our own works, the one who worked on our behalf. We are forgiven and declared righteous as we turn our way from ourselves and look to him alone, as we cling to him empty hands by faith. There is no room for us to boast in ourselves and to boast in Christ. The Judaizers are preaching this gospel of circumcision, this gospel of works, but they don't even keep the law. Why do they keep preaching it then? No doubt they've heard Paul's message before. They are trying to refute it here. Why do they persist in their unbelief? Why do they continue to preach circumcision? We see that a false gospel not only promotes the exaltation of self, but the preservation of self. Verse 12, Paul gets to the heart of the issue. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised. Why? But only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. They don't preach circumcision. Why? To avoid persecution. Now, here's the irony. You'll recall that the Judaizers were probably calling Paul a people pleaser. <laughs> saying he watered down the gospel. Okay, so to the Jews, he's preaching circumcision, adherence to the law, but when he got to the Gentiles, he kept faith and repentance, but he left out circumcision. He left out adherence to the law. He's taking out the hard part. He's giving you God. Paul argues the opposite. You'll recall in chapter 5, verse 11, that if you preach circumcision, that is, if you add works to the gospel, you abolish the offense of the cross. You see, to preach the cross is to preach offense. To preach works is to preach what people want to hear. Why is the cross offensive? Brothers and sisters, it is an affront to us and to our sins, to our efforts to justify ourselves before God. The cross is not just distasteful, distasteful because it declares that God is angry with sin, though it does. It's offensive because it declares that we can do nothing to rectify our situation. To a generation who has been told, you are enough, the cross says, you are not. You, as you are, invoke wrath. You, as you are, cannot save yourself. Salvation must be from the Lord. You see, by adding works to the gospel, be it circumcision. When we add works to the gospel, we communicate, you're not really that bad. Your treason against God is not so severe that you can't undo your wrongs. Your nature's not so corrupt that God won't approve you if you just try a little bit harder. To this, the cross says you cannot. To preach the cross is to preach offense. To preach works is to preach what people want to hear. But here, I think, is the most important thing for us to grasp about verse 12. The motive, the driving force behind false gospels is not theological. It's preservation. Now, no doubt they made theological arguments, and Paul has dealt with them in hand. False teachers today, they make theological arguments. Apologists, professors, pastors, we deal with the nature of their arguments. And yet, their gospel was forged in the fires of self-preservation. They might have thought they were being faithful to Scripture, but their driving desire is the praise of men. And to state what is obvious you can't be praised by and persecuted by the same people. It's not possible to be famous in the world and faithful to the word. And so the Judaizers like us, they had to choose accept and preach the cross or we take it 
we remove what we don't like, and we preach what will sell. And so the Judaizers, to make it more popular, to make it more praiseworthy, that they might avoid the persecution that the cross invites. Think about prominent false gospels. You might even think about friends that you know who have abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ as we understand it. Perhaps they've made theological arguments to you, but what was it that got them there? Perhaps they started embracing sin. Perhaps they started embracing the sin of a friend or of culture. They abolished the offense of the cross that they might avoid its persecution. Think about other prominent false gospels. Protestant liberalism, it started out by saying we can make the gospel more respectable by making it more rational. Okay, so we'll kind of jettison these superstitious or silly doctrines like the Trinity, the deity of Christ. We won't talk about demons. Today, Protestant liberalism says we'll make the gospel more inviting by making it more inclusive. We won't talk about the holiness of God. We'll redefine the justice of God by stripping it of retribution. And we certainly won't call the things our culture celebrates sin. Okay? There's an avoidance of the cross, a redefinition of the gospel, a losing of the gospel. They receive the reward here. Think about the prosperity gospel. It tells Americans and people all over the world what they want to hear. That the American dream is possible in Christ. That his death is for your material gain and you deserve it. No sin, no wrath, no daily cross-bearing. You see, what heretics do is they take Jesus and they make him say what they know. Remove the offense of the cross that they might avoid the persecution it invites. Brothers and sisters, I wonder, are there aspects of the cross that you avoid? When you're sharing the gospel, are you embarrassed by certain parts of it? Are you inclined to remove it that it might please the ears of others? We see that the choice put before the Galatians is the same choice that we have today. We can believe and preach a gospel that invites respectability from our coworkers and neighbors, or we can believe and preach the gospel of the cross. We can believe and preach in a gospel that changes with the winds of culture or one that submits to the unchanging moral character of God. We can preach a gospel that promotes and preserves the self or one that calls for daily faith and repentance. One that not only believes in the cross but embraces it as a lifestyle. NBC, if we change our mind about the gospel of Jesus Christ one day, it's not going to be because we've found a more faithful interpretation of Scripture but a more popular one, a more palatable one, one that invites the praise of men today at the expense of God's commendation tomorrow. But make no mistake, a gospel that will save us from the ire of men. There is a gospel of works. It tells you to boast in yourself. It aims to preserve the self. And in contrast, Paul is going to give us the gospel of the cross. We turn now to consider it the gospel of the cross. Two subpoints. We boast in the cross and we embrace the cross. First, we boast in the cross. Verse 14, Paul, in contrast, he says, But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, whereas a gospel of works is fundamentally about earning effort and therefore being able to boast in yourself before man and others, Paul is saying that he will not boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word 
uh, boasting here, I think it's more than bragging. I don't think Paul's saying he doesn't brag about anything ever. Like, he doesn't brag about his mom's falafel. <laughs> I'm sure she's got a great falafel. The word here, more than bragging, John Stott writes, it's helpful, to boast in is to glory in, to trust in, rejoice in, revel in, live for. The object of our boast or glory fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory or boast is our obsession. So the way that Paul is using boasting here, what we rest in for our salvation, and it is therefore what we worship. It's seen in Christ are mutually exclusive. You cannot trust your works and Christ's. You cannot be about your self-exaltation and the exaltation of Jesus. But as we've seen, the cross renders our boasting in self null. Now Paul is saying he won't boast in anything except for the cross of Jesus Christ. If there was one person, if there was one person that had room to boast in the flesh, it would have been Paul. Okay? Sorry, it's not you. It's Paul. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has ground for confidence, that is for boasting in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day, check. Of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Then he goes on, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, what Paul thought was gain, everything he was trusting in, he came to realize it was rubbish. You see, our works under the law, they don't rectify our situation. Not only can we not keep the law perfectly, but our efforts to justify our self-righteousness, it actually brings spiritual bankruptcy. But... What we cannot do for ourselves, God himself has done in the cross. This is why we boast in it, why we trust in it, why we glory in it, why we sing about it. We boast in the cross, not in the self. Now, to someone who is living in the first century in the Roman Empire, this idea of boasting in the cross would have been obscene. It would have been jarring. This is because the cross is a scandal, the crucifixion or the cross, it was so offensive, you wouldn't talk about it in company, in polite company. Like if your kid was running around saying, cross, cross this, cross that, you'd spank them, you'd rub their mouth out with soap. It was okay to do those things back day. You see, crucifixion, it's a capital punishment for slaves and for foreigners. It is a picture not only of utter damnation, but of humiliation. It's not fitting for a Roman citizen, let alone God. And yet the Christian is saying we boast in it. We glory in it. We trust in it. Why? You see, the offense of the cross is just one half of the story. At one and the same time, the cross declares what we owe and what God has paid. It declares what we deserve and what God himself has delivered. It proclaims, yes, that we are powerless to save ourselves and that God is very deserving of hell of hatred even, and yet, for those of us in Christ, we are destined for heaven. The cross, more clearly than anything else, gives us a picture that we are completely unlovable and yet utterly loved by an infinite God. 
At the cross, we see the worthy one treated as worthless. That worthy ones might, worthless ones might be treated as worthy as the Son of God. We boast in the cross when we sing, Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. We see the cross is not just offensive, it is dignifying, as it tells us the lengths that God would go for his people. So we boast in the cross because it magnifies the mercy of God. We don't exalt in the self, we exalt the Savior. If you're visiting us this morning and you are not a Christian, I wonder what you think about the cross of Jesus Christ. Jewelry, it's become a religious icon. What do you think about the cross? It says to you two things this morning. One, it is a warning of judgment that is to come. It shows us that God is serious about sin, that he is angry towards sinners. The cross is also a promise. It is an invitation to salvation. You see, there upon the cross, it was finished. God himself has dealt with our sins. And any one of our members this morning would love to talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to stay after us, to chat with us about it, to explain why it is that we trust in it, why we boast in it. Christian, we boast in the cross, meaning in Christ and in Christ alone do we trust for our salvation. But we don't just boast in the cross, we embrace it. This brings us to our second sub-point. We embrace the cross. We embrace the cross because through the cross we get four things. Okay, I have four sub-sub-points. <laughs> we're, like we're like in a homiletical dungeon right now. <laughs> but Paul, he's going he's gonna to kind of bullfire, bring us through some of the major themes of the book. We embrace the cross first because through the cross we die. Through the cross we die. You see what? The law couldn't accomplish because it was weakened in the flesh. God himself has done. He has dealt with our sin. Through the cross, we die. Paul has been developing this idea of Christ's crucifixion as our crucifixion. You'll recall Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is what we call union with Christ. That because, because he represents us as our covenant head because the spirit indwells us we grab hold of him by faith that our life has been so intertwined with jesus that everything that is his his righteousness his relationship with the father his kingdom everything it becomes ours including his history in the benefits of his death to galatians 2 20 paul added galatians 5 24 now those who belong to christ jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires you see, when Jesus died, the old part of you died. Your habits, your sin struggles, sin's definitive power and reign over your life was given a final blow at the cross, a fatal blow. And here in chapter 6, Paul adds one more thing. You'll see there at the end of verse 14, the world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. And so as we think about the cross Christ Jesus was crucified, our Lord. We were crucified with him. Our flesh, the oldest, was crucified, and the world through us was crucified, meaning the world died to us and we died to it. You could think about the world like this, not in terms of creation, the kind of material cosmos. So what the flesh is to you, the world is to the cosmos. It's that part of creation that doesn't submit to God's rule because it's under Satan's reign. 
Okay, the world is this present evil age which Christ came to rescue us from. And we see that this happens not through the law, but through the cross. How does Jesus rescue us from the power and system of sin that rules the world? Through the cross. It's through his death. It was there that we died to it, and it died to us. It was there that our master, our old master, lost his rule and his dominion over us. It is through the cross that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. You see, our old, our former master's jurisdiction is this present evil age, but we, because of the cross, are the people of the age to come. So whereas false gospels embrace the sin, character, philosophy, and praise of this age, we say that we have died to it. God himself did for us what the law weakened by the flesh could not. We embrace the cross because through it we die. We also embrace the cross because through it we live. Through the cross we live. Paul goes on, verse 15, For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. Okay, it's through the cross we die. It's through the cross that we live. We are brought into new creation. Now to be clear, Paul is reminding us here, it's not as though Paul is anti-circumcision and he's pro-uncircumcision. He's saying those things don't matter. They don't have any bearing on our salvation. He doesn't care whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. But the second you make those things necessary for salvation, they become deadly. You see, the answer is not to trust in your uncircumcision. It's to trust in the cross. And I think what Paul is doing in particular in reminding us of earth, uh, in verse 15 is that we've been given life through the cross, and part of the mark or sign or fruit of new life is unity. It's unity in the people of God. You'll recall that in the churches there in Galatia, that there was ethnic disunity. Jews and Gentiles weren't eating together because of the Judaizers' gospel. Paul is saying that things like circumcision and uncircumcision, they are signs of the old world, of the old creation, of the present evil age. Our world is rife with disunity. This should not be the case for the church. This is because the church is the people and the place where new creation already exists. You'll recall what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that there is no position of privilege before God based on our ethnicity, our social status, our gender. Now, to be clear, being new creation doesn't mean that we lose any of those distinctives. Like we continue to be male and female. In the back, we got a female restroom, we got a male restroom. <laughs> it's not that we lose these distinctives, but things like circumcision, uncircumcision, they were marks of the old world because in the old creation, there are things other than the cross that are most important. But you see that being in Christ, one in Christ, we are the people of new creation. The same spirit that gives us adoption brings forth unity, harmony, love, peace. The cross brings not only death for us, but life, and so we embrace it. Thirdly, and similar, we embrace the cross because it makes us the people of God. The cross and the cross alone makes us people of God. We see this in verse 16. May peace come to all those who follow this standard, and mercy even to the Israel of God. Now notice, this is kind of a benediction, kind of a prayer. 
Paul is saying here that peace is conditional. It's given to those who follow this standard, meaning peace is for those who boast not in the flesh, but boast in the cross. Those who don't look to things like circumcision or uncircumcision for salvation, but who understand that new creation matters. It's conditional. Paul also says that mercy is conditional. It's for the is who is the Israel of God. There are basically three options. Okay, It could be ethnic Israel in its entirety. It could be a remnant of ethnic Israel who believes in the gospel. So we're talking about ethnic Jews boasting in the cross. And then thirdly, it could be the church, the true spiritual Israel as it's united to Christ. Put in question form, we could ask, is this a new creation reality or a fleshly one? So I think if Paul means one or two, meaning it's an ethnic distinction and not, he's not talking about the entire church, he would completely undermine the, the entirety of his argument that he's been making for six chapters. Okay, you might turn to or just recall Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says there, Now the promises are spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Paul is saying that the promises that were made to Abraham were made to him and to his offspring or seed. Not plural, not every ethnic Jew who would ever live, but rather, it was being made to Abraham and to Christ. Okay, we don't need to get into geopolitical Israel to receive mercy. We need to get into Jesus. Paul puts this quite clearly at the end of chapter 3, verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So how do we become recipients of the promises made to Christ? This is true for ethnic Jews and for Gentiles. Abraham becomes our father through faith and through faith alone. Paul has not spent four chapters, five chapters arguing against circumcision or saying it doesn't matter, only to now say it does matter. Like he's not spilled all this ink arguing that in Christ we are one when really he means we're actually two. If he meant ethnic Israel here, he would actually give the Judaizers a foothold. They would say, see, you should be circumcised. But friends, we can rest assured that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. And they are for all of his people. They are ours as we are clothed in him by faith. And so we embrace the cross because through the cross we die, through the cross we live, through the cross we become the people of God, and through the cross, our last sub-sub point, we look like Jesus. Verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. It's like Paul saying, I'm done. He's saying, don't at me, don't email me, I don't want to hear about these Judaizers, <laughs> right? The argument's been sufficient. It's time to cast them out of the camp. Okay, I'm done. Why? Because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. This is, this is just a straight up mic drop from Paul. Like these Judaizers, they think they bear the mark of God because they the cross until they are stoned and left for dead. Like they're eager to have you shed a little blood, but they are not willing to bleed for Jesus, to bleed like Jesus. You see, if the fruit of false religion is the avoidance of the offense of the cross, if it's the evasion of the persecution it brings, the fruit of true religion is faithfulness to the gospel and the embrace of whatever it may bring, even as and when they treat us like Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, there is no Christian apart from the cross. 
The cross was not just for when we first believed, meaning it's not just for our justification. It is the means by which we become more and more like Jesus. We are to pick up our crosses daily as a lifestyle. We are to preach it in its entirety, including its offense. And when the stones come, and they will, we don't loosen our grip on the cross. We cling to it all the more, knowing it is our and their only means of salvation. And we know that through it, we've already died. We've already risen to life. What can man do to us? You see, the mark of a Christian is not popularity. It's not numbers. It's not worldly reputation. It's not material gain of daily faith and repentance, of boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ and embracing it, even as they treat us like they did our Savior. May our goal be the same as Paul's. He wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, 11, my goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. You see, you have to die first to rise. It is a cross that we boast in. It's a cross that we embrace. In the end, we have finally two options. A message of this present evil age or the gospel of the world to come. Verse 18, a benediction. Brothers and sisters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray.